you know, 24-7, I'm thinking about what I'm going to drink next. I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat next. I'm thinking about what I'm going to talk to my crew about. I'm thinking about the next cookbook that I'm going to be reading. It's about taking people on and not worrying about where they've come from or what they've had as long as their attitude is right. Every time somebody comes into your restaurant, you kind of got an obligation to create a great memory for that person because, you know, you're paying good money to sit at that restaurant and you've got to bring the whole experience. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. But we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute great pleasure to welcome to the podcast today neil perry neil thank you so much for coming on mate pleasure mate pleasure to be here when I when I when the producers told me that they had nabbed you, I got to tell you, I did have a little bit of a a little bit of a high five to myself. I was pretty stoked. <laughs> uh, I have been a passionate consumer of your of your wares. I've been a, a customer of yours now. I think it's God. It's got to be close to twenty years. Um, you know, right, I, I, I started going back to Rockpool. I think it was back in two thousand and two, two thousand and three. Uh, and I've I've been to anything that you do, mate. I'm always trying to get my get in there and and, and sample some of the way. <laughs> awesome, but mate, what I would love to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> and look, you really I, and look, I've got so many incredible memories, and I really do. Like, I've actually got some incredible memories um, from your establishment. I remember one of the first memories that I have. I think it was the first time I dined in Rockpool. I said to the waiter, I was like, mate, it's a little quiet in here. How come there's no music playing? And then he says, well, uh, Neil doesn't want to take the emphasis off the food. And I remember at the time going, what the fuck? <laughs> but then <laughs> as I started to process, I was like, because I'm a real foodie. And, um, you know, one of the things yeah, that yeah. I find when I find something really <laughs> incredible, like the whole world will stop. And I'll just focus on that point in my mouth where the sensation is being born. And it was interesting because yeah. I'd never looked at food that way. And my second favorite memory of, of your establishment, I think it was in 2004, oh. I think Samantha was pregnant with, was it your second child at the time? Uh, yes. No, uh, yeah, yeah, the first with us or, and then the second. Third. second I think me. it was 2004 or 2005. No, no, I, no. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, 2005 would have been the second one. She was born in 2006, yeah. Okay, so it might have been 2000 and, and it was a girl, right? So it would have been 2005 actually. Yeah. But yeah. I remember I walked into into Rockpool. You guys were completely booked out. I had a mate that had just flown in from the UK. It was his 50th birthday. He had always wanted to dine at your establishment and never had the opportunity to do so. And so I remember I rang American Express uh, Centurion. I tried to, they tried to get me a booking. They said, it's completely full. And I promised my mate that I was going to get him in there. And so lo and behold, three of us <laughs> rock into to Rockpool. It's a Friday night. The restaurant is absolutely packed, and I walk up to um, to 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 the front of house, and I think it was the manager at the time. He says, "Look, mate, I'm I'm completely sorry. The place is completely booked out." And I was like, "You got to have something somewhere." He goes, "I'm afraid, sir, it's booked out." And he was really polite, but he turned and walked away. But then Samantha walked in, and she was pregnant, and obviously she had a belly on it at the time. And I said, um, "Would you like me to guess the, the the sex of your child?" And she goes, "Well, 
I can't remember. She said, well, we don't know yet if we know. And I said, I think it's going to be a girl. And then she laughed and she brought you over. <laughs> you had a laugh. And then I told you that I was trying to bring a mate in and you, out of the kindness of your heart, you literally pulled in a table in the front window that no normally looked like oh, where right. <laughs> people would there. sit to <laughs> wait to be dined. You guys put a, yeah. a, a tablecloth down and we had an incredible meal and it was one of the most incredible memories of my life and also one of my mates. Oh, it was mate, his 50th awesome. birthday, so so thank you. But yeah, um, yeah. I'm curious to know, most people, you know, unless they've been living on a rock, they know who Neil Perry is. They know the Rockpool group, you know, especially if they've flown on, uh, on Qantas. But um, obviously I'm curious to know, whenever you go to a dinner party or a barbecue or somewhere where people don't know you and they say, so what do you do? I look at your pedigree and I go, how the fuck would you answer that question? So what do you, when, when people ask you that question and they legitimately don't know who you are, what do you say? Um, well, I, I usually just say I've, I've got restaurants. You know, I'm in the restaurant business. I'm a restaurateur. Um, and then as things unfold, yeah, things like Qantas and other bits and pieces of my life, um, I can weave in if, if, uh, if, if, if appropriate. Don't, don't try and grandstand too much. So, um, it's really just, uh, you know, I kind of define myself by my restaurants, my amazing staff um, and all the people that have helped do exactly what you said. Uh, you know, our, our whole philosophy is to create great memories. Mm. So, um, you know, for you to say that you, you have these great memories is, is really, you know, that to me says that my staff uh, have, have done exactly as we, as we envisage, as we try to do um, every day, which is just, you know. Wow. Every day you start again, every day you start from scratch and, and it's about the memories you create that day that give you longevity. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased we've created a couple with you. Oh, mate, and there, there's a lot more, especially when Rockpool <laughs> Grill opened. Like that was when the game changed yeah, for me yeah. because I love, I love grill food. But um, <clears throat> at the same time, you know, I look at the success you've created now and I can't help but think there's been one hell of a, uh, a journey, a battle in order for you to get there because nothing in the restaurant game comes easy and to be able to not no. only create a restaurant but to create a brand that has stood the test of time in probably one of the most volatile sectors of the economy but also to actually own the premium space from a branding perspective because most people say fast food they think of coca-cola they say soft drink they th sorry yeah. soft drink they think of coke fast food they think of mcdonald's but what's interesting you know with the for people i know when you mention premium food your name is always right up there and that's not an easy feat to do you know from a search perspective to own that but where did it all be where did your passion for food come in like where, where did it all begin well, I mean, I think it all started with my father. Um, he was a butcher, uh, fisherman, gardener. So, so I really learned about seasonality, about you know fresh fish, uh, being a butcher, about you know amazing meat and offal and all the sorts of things that kids probably didn't um, eat at the time. But I really enjoyed it in the in the sixties and seventies. And um, you know, every piece of fish we ate, we caught and he caught, uh, and then be out in the garden weekends and during the week. Uh, depending on the season, you know, tomatoes, zucchinis, eggplants, that sort of stuff in summer. We'd be digging up root vegetables and cabbage and different things in winter. So it really taught me about seasonality and he was also a really good cook. So I guess I was around food. I ate really good food um, and we ate very fresh food because it was, you know, either caught by him or grown by, by us. And um, that's, that's really how I, I guess I started in the food business. And then Really by chance, you know, taking a, wanting to take a break from school, not going to university straight away, you know, typical gap year sort of thing. And uh, got a job as a waiter, uh, you know, just to earn some money to, to Where did you grow go up travelling overseas. 
I grew up in in Ballface Point, actually, in the in the southern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, right. um, and then moved to Dremoyne for the last bit um, of my schooling and my my life uh, as a young person. And then um, then mum and dad left left town. They went and lived in Port Macquarie. He retired. And I remember they said to me, oh, would you like to come and live with us up there? And I thought, no way, I'm going to the, the country. So, um, so yeah, I started working in a restaurant front of house and I just fell in love with the whole business. How old was um, that? Spent, what age was that? That was, that was from um, 18. Okay. And uh, from 18 to 25, I worked um, front of house, so managed restaurants and you know, bars and, and, and things. And then at, uh, I, I, you know, all, always been doing very elaborate dinner parties at home and cooking and, and reading cookbooks. And, um, and I, I sort of love that. And, you know, I managed restaurants, so I was making a fair bit of money. So dining out, drinking great wine. And, um, I just realized at some stage, you know, in that sort of 25th year that what I really, really wanted to do was go into the kitchen. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I was lucky enough to talk to a, a what was great it that chef, that Damien. Desire, though? I'm just out of curiosity because front of house. Uh, because it's not I really, there was a bit of that. I mean, you know, I loved cooking, so 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 that was really an important part of it. But I I, I strangely uh, I was at, at sales at McMahon's, not at McMahon's Point, actually at Rose Bay, and and that was where Catalina um, is today. Michael McMahon's restaurant mm. or McMahon family now, and it was interesting because the chef actually had an accident on the on the Sunday on the Saturday night. He was skydiving. He hurt himself, not not fatally, but just injured himself. And I ended up. I used to stand on one side of the kitchen on the pass and send on Sundays on busy days the waiters, and I just didn't have anything anyone else to do it. So I stood on the other side and played it up and wiped plates and put the lemon in the right spot and called the guys on when to put the food on the grill and all the sort of things I knew how to do anyway because I'd stood and watched it so often from the other side. <clears throat> and so it just I just loved it. It actually dawned on me that, you know, didn't have to worry about customers complaining about not getting a view when every single table in the restaurant had a view. Um, you know, there was all that sort of stuff. So um, I decided because I loved cooking and I always read great cookbooks about the great chefs of France and so forth that I would ask my dear friend Damien Pignolet and he, he and Josephine used to run Claude's restaurant in Oxford Street um, in the early 80s and uh, I used to be a great customer. And so he, I went to see him and said, Damien, I'd really love to cook and, and I, I think I'd like to sort of move from front to the back of house and, and you know, what should I do? So he said, look, you know, you've got to write to the right places. So go and, you know, commit to an apprenticeship in, uh, in, in the right restaurant. And then he said, read, read, read. And he gave me a list of books that I, I should be reading, half of which I had um, anyway. And um, by the time I got home, uh, you know, Damien called me and said, hey, you know, we really love you to come and work here a couple of days a week. And um, I did. And then from that, he said, hey, we'd love you to come and work full time. And then he introduced me to Stephanie Alexander and she said, come down to Melbourne to her restaurant, Stephanie's at the time, which was a three hat restaurant. Uh, come and work. I've got a spot for three months before a new chef comes out of France. I'd really like you to do some stuff there. So I did. And then I came back and worked at, um, at Baron Joey, uh, sorry, not Baron Joey House, at, at Brow Waters uh, at a restaurant called You and Me. Uh, a lady called Jenny Ferguson, who was an amazing chef, had that. And then I actually opened with Tony Pappas uh, the the Bayswater Brasserie, which was, you know, very early 80s, 82, 
Yeah, wow. Incredible place. 350 people came for dinner the first night we opened. It was just mayhem, basically. And <clears throat> it was mayhem every day for months. And I worked there for about three months. And um, then I was lucky enough to get a job at a restaurant called Baron Joey House as oh, well. the executive chef. Yeah. So I really wasn't ready for it, I don't think, probably. But, you know, I was pretty gun ho about my talents and my skills or whatever. But, you know, really, I, I, I knew nothing compared to what I do now. So, um, so I was lucky. Michael McMahon, who now, you know, just passed away, actually, but owned Catalina and uh, opened Bilson's in the 80s with Tony Bilson. Um, he bought Baron Joey House with his wife, Judy. And, um, yeah, they gave me – I started in November um, 1982. And by uh, Joan Campbell, a great food critic, had given me a fantastic review uh, late in 82. In, in 83, Leo Schofield, the Sydney Morning Herald reviewer, uh, gave me an amazing review along with Peter Doyle, who used to own Reflections, who used to be the chef at Est. Uh, gave both of us 17 out of 20, which is, you know, two hats of the highest level and um, and said the kid's a star and I was 26. And, um, you know, my life never, you know, never looked back uh, really. Um, so that was incredible. And then in 1984, I went traveling uh, to France. So it was the first time I'd kind of been overseas. And um, for 21 days, I had in France with my girlfriend. We went traveling together. She was working at Baron Joey house with me in front of house and um we went to all these amazing three-star restaurants first of all i went to robichon i went to lacastrat which was alan sandaran um went to freddy gerardet in switzerland which is extraordinary all these incredible restaurants uh spent a bucket load of money but it was great actually because it was eight francs to the dollar back then which is much better than what it is now in euro um, and probably the same price, it was the same cost as going to Brow Waters. It was the same as going to Three Star in Paris. And we drank beautiful wine, but I, I ate the most fantastic food. And, and when I came back, on reflection, I thought two things. I thought there's some great food happening in Australia. And, and secondly, I thought, hey, I, these guys are in France. They're French. They're cooking amazing French food. Makes perfect sense. What am I doing in Australia cooking essentially French provincial food um, on the peninsula at Baron Joey House? You know, doesn't that seem a bit crazy? And so I thought a lot about it and I, th I thought, you know, I really need to bring in all the food that I love and have influenced me. And, and, and one of the first foods that really influenced me and that I loved eating was my dad taking me to Chinatown when I was very young and oh, wow. we had Chinese friends and we'd go to banquets of theirs and, and we'd go to their, um, you know, their Chinese New Year and their weddings. And so I ate all this incredible Chinese food. And so that was really the first thing that I bought over into, um, in, in, into my cooking was sort of Chinese and French and then a lot more Italian. And then I was reading books on Moroccan cooking at the time, Paula Wolford and other people. And so I started doing that and, and, and you know, Middle Eastern and things that had always influenced me in Australia here. Um, and I felt was a reflection of our multiculturalism, but particularly the Asian part because we're really part of Asia and we've been growing some amazing food here in Australia. And, and I focused it very much on, on seafood as well because we have incredible fish um, here. And so when I moved from Baron Joey House to, to um, the Blue Water Grill in Bondi in 1986, I sort of made that all, all seafood and, 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 and reflected a, 
a lot of what I learned at the Bayswater Brasserie because it was a 170-seat restaurant with a bar and we were doing 350 covers a night. Wow. It was really busy and I literally cooked all the seafood on a grill or a small stove or we did a couple of fried dishes and and by by virtue of the fact that I had to because the kitchen was so small, I sort of created a lot of um, Asian dressings and salads and different um, flavoured Asian things in butters and that I could just put on top of a grilled swordfish or I could just put on top of a piece of grilled tuna or blue eye or whatever. And the restaurant became very famous for kind of this, this Pan-Asian um, kind of really fresh fruit um, spice driven food uh, that was all seafood. And all the fish came in whole and all the crustacean was live and we filleted everything dry on the premises and we bought oysters um, direct from from the growers and so we did we blueprinted much of the stuff that we um, do now and that many of many of the other guys who do you know great produce in in Sydney and the rest of Australia sort of you know blueprinted that 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 first um, late late 80s kind of the way we treated seafood so I think that was really instrumental in setting me up and then I went to uh, was Blue Rockwell Water was that your first in- restaurant that you opened yourself. Or was it with a business partner? Uh, yeah, probably the first one I swung the doors open and sort of started and, you know, built it and painted it and all that stuff. And that's a and big then, risk because a lot of people say, how do you make a million dollars in the restaurant industry? They say, start with $10 million and open a restaurant. <laughs> what was it that pushed you over the line? Because obviously there's a difference between running a good kitchen and running a business. It, it, was, a, it was a lot easier back then though. Yeah, Don't right. forget, um, you know, well, you know, F, FBT had just come in. Um you know, superannuation wasn't in yet, uh, which really was an impost on the employer back then because we just couldn't pass on prices. Uh, GST couldn't pass on prices. You know, all these things that have happened to erode and erode and erode the restaurant margin. So now very difficult, then slightly easier. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. And then and then I went on to open Rockpool, obviously, in 1989 and went on to win, you know, Best Restaurant in Australia five times with Gourmet Traveller, seven times we were best restaurant in the world, in the top, you know, in the top fifty best restaurants in the world. Still highest finish of an Australian at four. Um, Tets has been in the top ten before, but I've been four and eight as uh, as well. Um, you know, restaurant of the year for for, uh, for good food guide. Three hats for many many years of its history. So it was a really the groundbreaking restaurant that made my made my name. And then along with Qantas, the, those three things, Neil Perry, Qantas and, and Rockpool are sort of very intertwined and, um, and uh, still very important today. But of course, you know, you, you kind of, you come to the world of COVID and all of a sudden, you know, you have a restaurant with zero income. You ha- you're working in, in the airline industry where everyone has to get stood down because you're not traveling. So it's not the best place to be at the moment, but I'm certainly happier being really well established and having made enough money out of restaurants to be able to survive. I'd hate, I'd hate to be in the middle of growing a small group at the moment because, uh, you know, the wheels of cash flow stopping dead on you. Um, pretty much all these small businesses are most likely trading, you know, insolvently or very close to the wind. And the issue is when we open, we're going to have that situation where JobKeeper will keep a few of these guys afloat for a little while as a subsidy but as long as restrictions are in on how many people we can seat, it's going to be very difficult because at capacity, it's hard to make money out of restaurants. But mm-hmm. landlords aren't going to give us breaks forever. Some of our landlords aren't giving us any breaks at all. 
Um, so, you know, it's going to depend on how, how all those balls are in the air. So I expect to see a lot of restaurants not open. And then I expect to see a lot of restaurants that open um, close after JobKeeper um, goes away. You you seem to have picked your timing perfectly because you you built Rockpool. You then, um, was Rockpool acquired as a part of an equity deal by venture capital firm? Is that right? Uh, yeah. So we so we so I built Rockpool and I did Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne, Rockpool yep. Bar and Grill, Sydney, Perth, Spice Temple, Melbourne. Sydney, Rosetta, Melbourne. Uh, and then I worked on a deal with Tom Pash from UPG, uh, Chris Hadley from, from um, Quadrant and myself, and we got together. Um, so I'm a sort of an, still a, a shareholder in the business, but yep. for obviously the private equity guy is the biggest. So certainly coming into this experience, it's been a lot less stressful yeah. than when I had <clears throat> guarantees on every lease you know, guarantees on every loan, um, all the sorts of things you have as a small business owner where, um, you know, you, 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 you bank, you're, rolling, you're rolling the bank on it every time, you're rolling a house on it every time. So I've been in a fortunate situation now and look, you know, we're a decent sized group. So we've burnt a lot of money, but we're, we've been able to survive by, you know, some really great management, you know, Tom Pash and Michael Campbell, the CFO and the CEO are really smart guys. And, and you know we've had to really focus and put our heads in, and so what is your make plan? sure that every step is, is is you know done with with the right degree of you know focus, and we'll do the same thing as we open up. We'll open up tranches of our business, yeah, uh, fully open hopefully by September. Because a lot of restaurants tonight right now, um, and and food and beverage, they're they're trying to pivot hard in a whole range of different ways. You know, some of them are going into the delivery model. Um, yeah. Are you guys Tough looking to, make to money? Yeah, <laughs> just to do anything, I guess, and that's what a lot of businesses yeah, yeah. in a range of areas are doing right now. What I'm curious to know is, with everything that's gone on, uh, obviously there might be some some streamlining that is is, is going to be happening in yeah. restaurants and and locations. But are there any innovations that you guys have thought about or you're considering, um, whether you can talk about them or not, that you're going to be launching? Because one of the things I'm really distressed about, and I say distressed, first world problems, is there's not that many <laughs> high-end food establishments that are doing delivery food. Like I'm talking, you know, yeah, yeah, high-end. Are you guys considering any kind of innovation or pivot that would take the market by yeah, surprise? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely. Some of our businesses like Saki are doing great takeaway trade yep. in, in Double Bay. We're going to when we open and get people back in the kitchen at Rockpool, we'll we'll offer kit meals. So you'd cook your own Rockpool steak, but you'd have the potato gratin, a fantastic salad you could put together to start with. Um, you know the, the the sprouts or the roast pumpkin or you know all the sides that you could just pop in the oven. We'd explain how to cook it, and you'd end up with a really fantastic meal. Spice Temple will probably do a combination of that and and traditional takeaway. Rosetta would do things like, you know, you, you boil the handmade pasta and you, you know, fold it through the sauce, you know, mount it with a pasta water, great cheese over the top, uh, things like that, as well as obviously cope with the social distancing and also um, not only stay within the guidelines that the government spells out with us, but make sure that our customers feel very safe. So, you know, strong wellness policies with our staff as well as our customers. And we already have great, you know, sanitation and hygiene, um, you know, Someone rang me the other day and said, oh, you're not going to have side dishes anymore. I said, well, no, we will, but we won't have one pair of tongs that you would go and touch another person's plate with uh, and share it. You know, the person will have their own share cutlery piece. Just like in a Chinese restaurant after SARS and bird flu, mm. you have the inside chopsticks, which are the ones that you eat with, and the outside chopstick, which is where you take your shared food to your own plate without touching anywhere near your mouth or anything. So 
a lot of people don't know that. Westerners, when they go to China, <laughs> wonder why. To me. Wonder why there's two sets of chopsticks. That's the reason. So, but but when we closed, my biggest fear that people would be scared of glasses and and crockery mm. and cutlery and things. But I don't think that's the case. I think people want uh, to to trust the establishment and they want to have a sense of normality and they want to drink that great bottle of wine out of a great Rideau glass and they want to take that fantastic 90-day age steak and they want, to, they want to have a steak knife in their hand when they're, when they're cutting it. But, um, and we'll also focus very strongly on um, catering. So, you know, for people to be able to go, yeah, right. I, I'd, now I'd love you to put a chef and a waiter at home. We'd love to do a table for 12 or a table for 10 and it's going to be a really special dinner and we want it to be Rock Pool or Spice Temple or Rosetta. So we think with a combination of kit meals, catering and dining, we'll be able to, to function and then we'll really be waiting for the time that the rains are taken off. Because I said, whenever we've got capacity restraints in the mm. restaurant business, it's going to be very hard because unless our landlords take the rent down by 30 40%, however much the turnover is off, um, it's going to be occupancy costs are going to be a very large part of everybody's business when normal rents come back and um, JobKeeper goes away and the banks bring back all the various repayments that um, – They've put on hold for loans and 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 for uh, for um, business and for um, uh, housing housing mortgages and so forth. So it's going to be really interesting. But I mean, I think for us, one of the great things was, you know, at heart I'm a kind of nurturer and I really care about people in the community. And I talk to my staff a lot about it. And uh, my business partner, my former business partner Trish Richards, and I, or she's involved with Qantas with me. We started the Rockpool Foundation in 2013 because we'd always been heavily involved in charity and community. So I, I sort of took to my board this perfect opportunity here. Hey, we've got all of these guys who are sitting who would love to cook in front of house people who would love to volunteer to do a day a week and do something. We've got all this infrastructure sitting in Melbourne and Sydney, our beautiful kitchens, Rosetta here in Sydney, Rockpool in Melbourne. <clears throat> and we've got a charitable foundation where people can put um, tax uh, tax uh, deductible dollars in, and, and it's completely audited every year by KPMG. And so I hatched a plan to create, instead of home delivery, uh, a, a meal program called Hope Delivery. Oh. And Hope Delivery by Rockpool Foundation oh, wow. is all about feeding our visa workers who don't have a safety net. Wow. And, uh, and I've been working with Ronnie Khan to help her out with, wow. with Oz Harvest, and she's you know, the homeless situation, they're being put up in accommodation, but they need food. They're, um, you know, the youth shelters, you know, youth is really suffering. Some of the first guys to be stood down out of hospitality and, and gig economy and so forth. The other the other big one is is women and children, refuges and, and crisis centres because domestic violence has gone crazy. Women have had to grab the children and flee. They need food. They need sanctions and safe um, sanctuary and safety. And so we're, we're now producing uh, and we've got some fantastic sponsors like Amex have come on board, uh, Lexus have come on board, wow. Lavazza, uh, Coles, um, you know, it's been incredible. Daryl Lee, a couple of foundations, Lucy and, and uh, Malcolm Turnbull, um, Chris Hadley and Sue Hadley from the Mandolin. I mean, I've raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. I'm talking to governments. I'm going to raise more. We're making a meal for two, a really great meal for two dollars, um, and we're distributing it to people down in Melbourne. I think uh, eight hundred were going out um, wow. Riverside by our visa guys picking it up today. Yeah, wow. Uh, we just sent off three hundred to a bunch of student visa guys that are out at home bushing up at Kent Street, 
Uh, and, and, and we got a thousand meals to Ronnie today to distribute to all the people who really, really need it. So really, really feel like through, through Hope, Hope Delivery and Rockpool Foundation, we're able to turn a really, you know, dire situation yeah. into this moment where, again, Rockpool Dining Group can show that they can lead in the community and, and, in- and hold, you know, hold the helping hand. It's interesting. I think that's one of the big positives that's come out of this whole scenario, is seeing the way that the community is coming together and the way people are supporting one another. But you, you you almost answered my question, but I'll ask it anyway, because I was going to ask, obviously, you've got an enormous amount of infrastructure that is just sitting there idle. And you've yep. got landlords that, in some cases, don't give a royal, um, and they want, yeah, they don't want yeah. to get paid anyway. Uh, obviously, you're working in the, con- the constraints of leases and, and, and the law and everything yep. else. But have you guys got any kind of a, a short to medium term plan in terms of looking at, okay, Right now, there's got a there's like a six month buffer in there with you know job seeker and stimulus and, and credit, and, yeah. yeah. And once that starts to run dry, you know we're we're going to be experienced possibly a little bit more turbulence that's going to be coming off the back of this. Have you guys actually started to consider what that looks like from an infrastructure perspective in terms of strategic? Oh, yeah. How do we how do we scale back efficiently and effectively in order to be able to ramp up? Because one of the things that we I've seen some people doing is they're trying to stay open regardless. And at, 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 and what I'm seeing is the potential for such severe economic loss can be hard. that these people yeah. won't be able to bounce back when the market recovers. And rather than conserving and streamlining, they're trying to keep everybody employed, yeah. but in the end, they're going to keep everyone unemployed. So what, what are you guys thinking? Yeah. Well, the first thing we did was we, you know, heavy, very heavy heart. We, we had to stand people down. We yeah. had kind of conversations with landlords and suppliers and we had to have conversations with everybody really and some successful, some not so successful. Our commitment is in the end we will get to everybody. Um, we're, our staff through JobKeeper, we've been able to keep uh, you know, a, lot, a lot closer than we thought initially. Yep. Uh, that, was a, that was a really great news story you know, a couple of weeks into the, the stand-down orders. Um, but, but Paramount has been to, to you know, conserve cash. I mean, we've, yep. we've burnt millions of dollars being closed, but we would have burnt millions more had we tried to say mm-hmm. um, open in, and viable in some way when it's not. I mean, I put a Instagram post up yesterday with with Wednesday uh, with Tuesday and Wednesday morning at nine fifteen or nine o'clock. Photos of George Street. I mean, there just wasn't a person on them, you know. And like normally at nine o'clock on a on a on a Wednesday morning, you would see thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Um, in George Street, and that's going to impact our, our restaurants when, when when we come back. You know whether the government says, you know, fifty in June and 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 hundred in July or whatever the number is, and then whatever the restrictions go to after that, as far as distancing is concerned, you know, it, it's one thing to have capacity in your restaurant; it's another one to have people who are going to fill it. So mm-hmm. we've had to focus on conserving the most amount of money so that we're able to come out the other end. And essentially open with making a little bit of money in each of the restaurants, trying not to burn any more cash, trying to get ahead, trying to get creditors, uh, uh, you know, paid off, try to get landlords in the right um, position, try to get all the sorts of things. I mean, you know, when governments start to bring back, you know, payroll tax and charges and, you know, land taxes and when the banks come back and say, hey, guys, you know, this is the situation with loans that are being put on hold and so forth. So. We're, we're focusing very strongly on getting to the other end to survive and then we feel like we're in survival mode for the next six months mm. until we really start to get some momentum. We're fully open and we're hopefully got some blue sky in 2021 where we can see restrictions easing and we can see 
that some of our larger venues are going to be able to have more than 100 people um, in them because of their square meterage. I mean, you know, take Rockpool, for instance. If you've got a 400-square-meter restaurant, you can have 100 people in there. Well, Rockpool Bar and Grill in Sydney is 1,300 square meters over, over two levels with a chamber that has a three-story high ceiling. Seems a bit odd that you would lump that in the same category as a sort of box of a yeah. restaurant that's 400 square meters, yeah. you know. So, and I get the government have to, you know, make a rule to make it so that people can understand what it should be and so forth. But we want to get to 2021 and, you know, what does that mean? So, Every year, year for the last uh, three years, we've done an amazing January event with the Australian Open where we've done a pop-up Rockpool Bar and Grill, uh, and I've worked there for the two weeks every year. It's, it's, it's the most fun you could ever have, and it's, it's, it's hell at the same time because I sort of work 25 shifts straight, <laughs> and um, you're absolutely knackered by the end of it. But, um, you know, the reward is extraordinary, and to see – all those amazing internationals and Australian corporates and Australian people and brilliant tennis players and all these, you know, and I've got, you know, I've got me in crown down there. So I'm seeing them when I go back to the hotel at night and they're eating in my restaurants. And so it's a really fantastic carnival atmosphere, but we're all, we're all doing menus and we're all talking about how it's going to go this year. And the big unknown is, you know, are we going to have a crowd? Are we going to have corporate catering? Um, Wow, you know, you'd have to say the chances are probably not rather than yes at the moment, given that they're talking about the Indian tour with cricket at the end of the year, which is through November and December, being played with empty stadiums. I mean, mm. I just can't imagine the Australian Open with no crowds. Mm. It would be just the, uh, the, the most extraordinary hollow feeling because it is one of the great sporting festivals of mm. the world. So, you know, COVID's sort of taken away more than just you know, the economy, it's sort of, it's almost, you know, destroying or has you know, started to erode the Australian spirit. You know, mm. we define ourselves through sport. sport, the amazing, you know, mateship that we have, uh, the, the, the passion and love we have for our country. Um, and, you know, you're just seeing all those things that, that make it normal, that make life normal are being eroded all the time. Are you guys starting to scenario plan and contingent, create contingencies for, you know, a very different world post-COVID, which I think we're all probably getting to the point where we're starting to accept. Yeah. But I'm curious to know if you guys are actually running a number of scenarios and going, okay, you know, scenario one is scale back, scale up. Scenario two is, you know, maybe there's social implications or legal or legislation implications that are going to come in that you know yeah. we need to we need to start thinking about. Are you guys at that stage of the game where you're really starting to get into okay, look, what does this look like three to four or five years from now? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, probably uh, the focus is what does it look like six months to twelve months from yeah. now? Because okay. the reality is the government will, uh, you know, put some 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 restrictions around us, uh, and particularly if say there's another wave. Let's just say there's another wave of infections and. We're all praying like mad that that doesn't happen. But let's say we get to, you know, we've opened up a bit, we get to September and all of a sudden, you know, infection rates, community transfer go through the roof. Um, I think there'd be a response to that. Uh, and if even if they don't go to a full shutdown like they did because they feel they can control it now and the hospitals are ready, I think they'd start to legislate and put around rule changes that would be, would feel like they were much more permanent than essentially the ones that they're currently talking about. Mm. You know, you feel at the moment like vaccine comes out or something like that comes out and, and, and you know, we're, we're going to be able to get back to normal. My fear is if it gets a bit crazy 
and then all of a sudden legislation steps in and all of these places, you know, we have to have, you know, electronic surveillance for, uh, you know, temperature testing, testing, for instance, not just on the staff but on the customers. Um, there's got to be electronic data collection of some um, form or, or, or another like the app, but I think we'll have to be responsible for it in restaurant so that anyone who dines in that restaurant any particular day or week can be contacted in case there's outbreaks. Um, you know, there might be legislated that we have to have, I don't know, I'm going to say bathroom attendance, for instance, or yeah. you might have all, all the sorts of things that, you know, in restaurants we're always going, well, how can we get ahead out of there because, you know, it's a, it's a cost and, and although we want to be still premium, is there, a, is there a more efficient way of doing it? What essentially all these regulations and, and this sort of um, shrinking of, of capacity uh, have is that they're often sort of things that are adding more time-consuming and more Cost. people or more person costs yeah. um, in. And so you're right. We have to take a, a lot of whole lot of scenarios and say, you know, what does that look like? And then you've got to say, well, if I have to charge more, and, and, it, and it's absolutely justifiable because of all the things that I've got to go through, but are people going to pay that? Mm. And is there going to be a situation where there'll be a price war between restaurants? There's a lot of, you know, independent operators and what pressure is that going to put on the supply chain? And, you know, so there's a lot of things that we've been thinking about that, that as you say, um, you know, budget one, budget two, budget three, budget four, and budget five, depending on how restrictions go, and also how legislated or how much red tape goes around mm. doing those 50 people or doing those 100 people or doing those 200 people, wherever we might get to. I mean, you know, do, do, does Australia, you know, ever get to the point where there's 90,000 people at the G again um, watching an amazing sporting match? I mean, I just can't imagine anything that's more un-Australian than mm. thinking about, you know, yeah. a, a, someone playing at the MCG with no people there. It's just terrible is it is it fair to say that you guys are actually positioned really well for this scenario you, you it sounds like you guys are very well capitalized but also it would appear very obvious that there's going to be not one layer but i'm going to say four or five of the six maybe seven layers of the restaurant industry are there they're going to be completely wiped out because most of these guys yeah. are trading day to day as you said some of them are trading even insolvent especially right now and so when yeah, we come yeah. back, there's going to be obviously a lot less selection, which means there'll be, in many respects, a lot more competition, but also a lot greater opportunity for monopolization of the industry by the people who are well capitalized, which can obviously go one or two ways. We've seen what happens in the airline industry in this country when it's monopolized. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. curious from your perspective, have you guys started to think acquisitions and go, well, hang on, at the same time here, there's also an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think you know, out of it's, it's like hope delivery. It's like turning a good thing into a, a yeah. bad thing into a good thing. So, so I think we're looking at opportunities. I think the situation is, we you know, we've, as I said, we've had we've had to burn a lot of money that we would have put aside for growth, um, and that would normally have been going into restaurant openings now, um, rather than supporting restaurant closings. Yeah, right. So, so we'll have to get out the other side and see what momentum we can get, gain. You know, we, we've got a couple of things here that are that are weighing on, on everybody's mind. Well, for three things, really. There's there's the restrictions that come around us um, that the governments form in each state and, and, and federally that, that, that regulate a business that, that, that doesn't need any more re regulation. We've got so many, it's crazy. Um, but particularly capacity regulation and then potentially regulation that causes us to put more man hours into doing what mm. we now do. Then there's the, what are people thinking 
when they come back? Um, what, what, how, how are people when they come out of COVID? You know, are they, are they terrified of getting the disease? Or I'm starting to feel like they're probably not going to be because we've handled it so well in Australia. And the reality of it is that, you know, you get a little bit more back to normal than possibly we thought of in March. In March, we thought the world was falling in. And as you watched New York and bodies being thrown into, you know, refrigerated pantex and bodies being thrown into ditches in, in, in a Ellis Island or wherever it was, you kind of thought the world had changed forever. But in Australia, I think there's a sense and feeling like, yes, we dodged a bullet and we, and if we don't travel for the next five years, who cares? But let's, let's, let's live in Australia and let's get back to some kind of normality. So we worry about that and, and how that's, you know, going to play on business activity. And then the third tranche of that is how do people feel about their economic circumstance? So have we ended up, um, you know, have we ended up with a customer base that's got enough money to spend for the aspirations that, that we have and the need that we have in turnover to be able to placate our, you know, all our cost structures that we have in the business. So they're the kind of three things that we're looking at. And we, we, we're, we're, we're fairly bullish now about how we think people are going to come back. Um, just seeing the activity from, from restaurants that opened with 10 seats um, last weekend in New South Wales was just extraordinary. People just, you know, dove in head first. Mm. So it's, um, it, you know, we're, I'm feeling more confident. Yeah. That 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 Australians are going to feel like they 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 can if they feel safe within that restaurant that that you know they they they're not going to um catch the plague. So mate, one of the things I noticed about you when I met you in 2005 and on I'll echo it now is you've got a really calm temperament. You're certainly not Gordon fucking Ramsay, um, which is unusual, which is <laughs> no. unusual for chefs because most chefs, and I'm sure like most people, you've probably got that side of you where you can bring it out and you can you can and you can be pretty lethal. But I am curious yeah. to know, as a leader in the organisation, like, is this? Do you normally carry the calm temperament that that, that we see right now? Yeah, mate, absolutely. Um, I've I've always been a bit zen about all this stuff. You know, I, I always think that you really can't control anything on the outside uh, and all the things that are happening around you, you can really only control uh, what's in your control. Generally, that's you emotionally, your clear thinking. Um, you know, and once you lose that, it's very hard then to influence all the things that are happening uh, around you and also to lead um, through through that. You know, you can, you can so easily get caught up in the chaos um, of it all if you lose your head. So I've always sort of you know, try to live my life like that. I've always tried to live with a great deal of respect. So I never try to raise my voice at people or yell at them, or I never um, try to you know, knock them down. I actually try to build them up. So my my philosophy is really about nurturing people and growing them through the industry. So I've really been in a position where I've got heaps and heaps of long-term staff that um, have always have always really stood by me and, um, you know, get people who've been with me for 25 years, 27 years, wow. 15 years, 10 years. And, and they're really the backbone of, uh, of, of my staff. They're all my head chefs and managers. And, and so um, they, they, they think the same as me. They understand the Rockpool um, philosophy of care. They, they understand the DNA that runs through us and, 
and that it's really you know got the pillar of, of, of sustainability and community and care and respect for each other care for our suppliers and most importantly care for the the restaurant uh, and the place that we're working so that we can really look after that and make sure that it's in great shape for our amazing customers who come in every day so it's really been i suppose that sort of you know a calming influence that i've been able to i suppose bring to some of the guys that um i think stays with them long term and allows them to to be better managers themselves as well because it really is quite counter counter counterintuitive to how you see the industry run like Again, it's really quite difficult because chefs are renowned for being, you know, in most cases, high pressure, high aggression, in yeah. some cases, intimidation, high temper. Um, but looking at it, this from a personal perspective, has has fa- did fatherhood change you as a businessman? Did it change you as a leader, or change you in the way that you deal? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think it did. I think I'm pretty much the same person after as before. I mean. Um, you know, you, you obviously take on a lot more responsibility, but because you're 100% 24-7 responsible for these people, um, like, you know, even my 25-year-old is just turning 26 at the end of the month. Um, you know, I'm always going, oh, Dad, you know, I'm a bit short on the rent now, or Dad, I want to go on a holiday. or And you, never, and you would never for a minute ever go, oh, look, you know, you've got to stand on your own two feet or you've got to do this. I mean, you can give them lots of advice. Um, and you try to make them um, better people and you try to help them to grow. And I certainly have worked with her a lot on that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, they're just, you're just a pushover for them. But I think being responsible for people in the hospitality industry, you know, being a manager from the age of 19 um, and being a kind of part owner from the age of 27, I've always felt responsible for people and I've always felt like they're part of my family. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm, you know, I'm 63 this year and I get out of bed every day and I come into work and I'm full of beans. And, um, you know, yesterday I was down at Rockpool and 500 kilos of um, meat came in um, for, uh, for hope delivery um, for us to work with over the next week. And Santi, one of my second chefs was there and I was there and, you know, but I couldn't just let him, um, you know, lug, even though my neck's killing me today, but I couldn't just let him lug all the beef upstairs and put it in the cool room. You know, I really had to, to help and work beside him. And I think that leading by example and mm. understanding that people are family and always making sure that you set the best example, the, the best, you know, human example, I think is really important for, for how I felt. So I, so I kind of feel like I've done that you know, really since I started managing um, people. And I, and I bring that right back to my father and mother. They were very calm, loving people, hardly ever saw them lose their temper either with other people or with themselves. And um, and only ever got kind of really nurturing, caring sort of things from them. I mean, you know, I was brought up in the age where, where um, I went to Newington. You know, I used to get the cane for everything. You know, you take your boater off going to the – going to the, uh, the train home and someone would dob you in and the next thing you'd be getting caned after assembly the next day and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I lived in the age of brutalization at school, but I mean, I never, my, my mother or father, you know, never, you know, no, there was no wooden spoon or raised a hand or I, I never had any of that at home. And yet I was sort of, I think, you know, reasonably obedient, grew up in a, a loving family understood the, the difference between right and wrong, which they taught me really well. 
and that's really framed my whole um, you know ethos for living and 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 turning into the person that I I, I am today, I suppose, and have been for a, a long time. It's interesting because one of the things, Cohen, that I kind of hope comes out of all this crazy because if you think about all the pain and suffering that it's causing people economically, I, w- I would love people to come out with a little bit more of a sense and feeling that that you know family is really important, that people are really important, that relationships are really important, that maybe materialistic things aren't as as big a driver in their life as they may be thought. And and this whole thing of consuming without um, thinking about the consumption, it's kind of like you know I think I think the world had gotten to the point where in fashion and, and, and in other things, it's sort of almost like eating without tasting. Mm. You know, they're just consuming things yeah. for the sake of, oh, mine's bigger than yours. Oh, I paid $10,000 for that Gucci bag. Oh, I, you know, rather than kind of thinking, wow, I've just got one beautiful piece. Look at that. I look at it every day. Um, and, and I love it. You know, I, I've got quite a few watches and I, I keep looking at them lately thinking, I, I really only love two or three of these. I shouldn't really sell the rest. Just because it's not right to own so many, I've, my my mind's changed a little bit about things mm. during this, and and I, and I hope that the whole world comes out going, hey, we just we just blew all this money on 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 you know saving the hospital system and saving a, a lot of people. I mean, let's put it in the perspective of three million people a year die of malaria. So 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 we put a lot of money into this. Why are we ever Why are we ever talking about what it might cost to have a greener planet to to talk about sustainability and, and environment. I can't understand why, you know, imagine if we'd have thrown all this money or one-tenth of this money at the environment mm. around the world. Um, and when you think about it, not having a world to live in in 70 years' time, that's going to be a lot more expensive than what, you know, coronavirus could ever cause us. I mean, if, if we can't grow food, if the sea's got no fish in it, um, you know, if, 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 if people can't live in, Parts of the world because it's become arid. If, um, the, if the you know people can't live in parts of the world because the sea level's risen, uh, you know you know all these things. They they say you know we, we can all of a sudden so we don't get COVID nineteen. We can throw an awful lot of money at it because that's now. But we can't think in a hundred years time or seventy years time or fifty years time and say we should be you know retraining people in the coal industry because they could get jobs in other industries. I mean that's. That's, uh, you know, or we should all be driving electric cars or we should all be, you know, planting indigenous um, native trees in Australia um, instead of pine forests. And, you know, there are so many things that we could do which would make, you know, more sense. So I noticed you do have a very Zen demeanor, Zen philosophy. Do you meditate? Are you into uh, spirituality or any, any existential um, exploration? No, I, I, you know, I, I don't really. I mean, I, I, I sort of try to find quiet times for myself. Is it, maybe that's meditation. I don't know. It's more, it's more just having a, a moment to clear my mind, and I do do that. Um, I don't sort of approach it uh, with a, with a, I, I suppose, a sense of regularity where I, I, I put aside a certain amount of time that you know during the day at a certain time of, of day. But you know, I do try to sort of. Uh, catch up with, um, with, with, with things where I'll just sort of, you know, zone out and have 10, 10 minutes to myself. I, I actually is sort of person who I, I'm, you know, I, I, I like social company. I like, I really love the people that I, I, I love and I love being with my staff and so forth. 
but I'm also very happy being, uh, you know, chunks of time being alone. I can just kind of chill out and watch a movie or I can chill out and read a book or uh, I can chill out and work on a little program. I mean, I can, I can sort of do stuff like, you know, sit down and spend a couple of hours working on my good weekend column that I do every month. And, 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 I, and strange, strangely, I find that really relaxing and playing around and, and making sure that I'm simplifying and thinking about how easy, easy it is for people to cook at home and all that sort of stuff. So I kind of find lots of moments. Um, I love eating and drinking. You know, I, I love drinking beautiful wine. I, I love the flavor, the taste, the sensation of, of it on, on the palate. Um, I love the history of wine. I love drinking older wines and thinking about all the things that have happened since that wine's been sitting down there, the people who made it. Wow. Um, I love you know, shopping and buying beautiful food and cooking it, not just in the restaurant but at home. And I love eating in restaurants. So one of the things I'm really looking forward to <laughs> um, is having restaurants back so that <laughs> I can eat in my beautiful restaurants and my friend's beautiful restaurants. Um, and I can't wait till I can travel around the world again and eat in my favorite restaurants around the world. So I, 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 find, I find dining, you know, just incredibly relaxing. And I suppose it's why I don't, I, I don't feel burnt out by, you know, 45 years of, of pretty solid work in the restaurant mm-hmm. industry. I've probably worked two lifetimes and, you know, have no disc on, on, on L5 or, or, or C6 and uh, a lot of pain associated wow. with that. But, but, but um, I think it's because I live and breathe it. You know, 24-7, I'm thinking about what I'm going to drink next. I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat next. I'm thinking about what I'm going to talk to my crew about. I'm thinking about the next cookbook that I'm going to be reading because I've got about 2,500 of them. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reading food magazines. I'm looking at, you know, Instagram of food. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm think dreaming up my next, you know, trip to Tokyo or to – to go visit my great mate Thomas Keller in 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 um, the French Laundry in Napa Valley, or you know, I'm so I'm I'm kind of consumed by it, but I'm really happily consumed by it. I'm not um, worn down by it. I know some people get kind of worn down by their profession, and they need a break mm. from it. I think because food and wine, you know, and I and I'm involved in preparing it and buying it and organising it and selling it and you know um i I sort of live it 24 7 and it um manages to give me energy rather than to take energy away from me it really is a part of your dna is there any restaurant that you would love to eat at that you haven't eaten at um i would really love to go to cosme next time i'm in new york i had a booking and the Qantas flight was late unfortunately and Corey and i um had to cancel uh, when we were there in 2016, when it had just opened, um, and fantastic female chef um, is is the chef there. She's just one chef, female chef of the year in the top 50, actually, uh, Diana, uh, and she's De Soto, and she's a Mexican, and it's a kind of modern Mexican Ooh. restaurant. And all of my mates have eaten there, say that it's just bloody brilliant. And I just love her philosophy because it's very much like mine. It's about it's about taking people on and not worrying about where they've come from or what they've had as long as their attitude is right and trying to grow them into, you know, you know, bigger and better people um, through, through what they learn and what they do with you in the restaurant. And so her philosophy and mine very much, um, you know, coexist together. Have you eaten at Aterra in New York by any chance? No, I haven't. I've heard about it though. Yeah, yeah, that's supposed to be fantastic. Oh. I'd love to eat there. 
Yeah. Um, have you been there? I literally, I had um, uh, my second date with my new partner or third date with my new partner in New York in January. I think it was the 22nd of January at Aterra. And it was one of the most mind-boggling, mind-blowing experiences yeah. in my life. That's sort of like a kind of Mediterranean Italian wine bar, isn't it? Um, it's it's so it's Stiga Station, um, very similar. Oh, to, okay, another one you're yeah. about. Yep, yep, yep. So I think it's like twelve courses. Yeah, it's awesome when you can get take taken on a ride oh, like it was that. Incredible! It was, and again, it was a very spiritual experience because every time you put something in your mouth, you literally every other sense in my body shut down, and and my mouth just took over, uh, and that no. was absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah. But I think um, food does that, uh, and, and it's incredible. Like we 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 say, you know, we know why we do what we do, which is exactly as I said to you to create yeah. great memories. How we do that is through the care philosophy, because um, we talk a lot about sure, you know, we're a restaurant, bricks and mortar. We take food to people. Um, at the end of the day, you kind of eat, you go home, you go to the bathroom, it's gone, right? Um, the kitchen hands clean down, walk out. That's the end of the restaurant. We've got to recreate that um, tomorrow. It's not like making a record or writing a mm. book or doesn't 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 live on and on. So I think you know that's really strong focus on every time somebody comes into your restaurant, you 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 not only have an opportunity and a responsibility, but you kind of got an obligation to create a great memory for that person because you know you're paying good money to sit at that restaurant and you've got to bring the whole experience it's got to be great food it's got to be you know fantastic wine it's got to be you know beautiful atmosphere you got you you've got to play your part because you've got to come with the right attitude as a guest mm. and you've got to engage with your company whether that's you know the two of you like you and your your partner when you went there for your, you know first or second date and that becomes a really special experience but you know everyone if, if everyone plays their part in that it, it, it is one of the most wonderful social experiences ever being in a restaurant i think that's why I'm so engaged in it is so many people get so much joy out of it. Mm. And we as restaurateurs and our amazing staff, we're, we're really nurturers. So for us, we get as much joy out of seeing that as as we do out of, you know, when we get a chance to sit there and, and do it ourselves. Now, mate, out of respect, final question. Um, best piece of advice you've ever received or give? Uh, it would have to be, no, it would have to be, um, look, you know, every mistake, study the shit out of it because, you learn 10 times as much from a mistake as you do from any triumph. Um, you know, so every time you get a kick in the gut, so every time you make a mistake, you know, was it the wrong position? You know, what was the demographic I was after? What was I thinking? You know, you know, what, what were all the contributing factors to the demise of that experience, whether that be a restaurant opening or whatever it might be, because you really have the opportunity to learn so much from that, to know that you would never do that again like that, or you would, change the way you did that slightly and it would be much more engaging whatever it might be because it's too easy to have great successes and not really think about it because you're sort of bathing in the glory so mm. it's important when you've got that kick in the guts and you're really hurting that you just sort of delve right into what caused that pain and i think that's really helped me because i've had some very painful experiences in my life but it's really helped me be a better person and it's helped me be a better restaurateur because i've always gleamed every ounce of 
blood, sweat and tears out of that mistake that I could. Mm, success is a poor teacher, as they say. Neil, I've got to say, this has been a real honor and a real privilege. I know you're a very busy man. You don't need to do this kind oh, of man, stuff. Thank but you. The fact that you have done it is an honor. And honestly, I can't wait until I can start dining in your establishments again, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> can't wait to see you there, Kerwin. It's going to be awesome, it mate. It is, mate. So, until then, you stay safe, okay? Fantastic. And um, for those of you who would like to, yeah, be exposed, if you haven't been exposed to the Rockpool Group, uh, you've got Rockpool in, uh, you've got Rockpool Bar and Grill in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Perth, Melbourne, um, Perth, yep. uh, Spice Temple, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, and Rosetta, Sydney, and Melbourne. Hey, if I could give just one shout out, please. Um, you know, just, just just if anyone wanted to go to my website, well, well the foundation yes. website, yes. which is www.rockpoolfoundation.com, there is a donating page, and if you give two dollars, we send a meal. If you want to give a thousand dollars, we'll send five hundred. Um, but we're raising some amazing money, but we are doing such beautiful things for people. Uh, wow. you, we, we, we can all be part of this. It doesn't have to be just the Rockpool Dining Group. Yep. Everybody can contribute um, and everybody can know that they are really helping out, which would be awesome. Dude, uh, well, I'll, 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 get, I'll, I'll lead the charge. Um, I'll, when I get off this, I'll go and donate five grand. Um, and that means we oh, can... Mate, you're unbelievable. No, you are, my friend. Like, honestly... There are so many ways that, you know, I've been wanting to help a range of people. Mate, send me an email. I'll sort it out so we can do it officially. And I want to get you on the page so that you're up there um, with our supporters. You're oh, amazing. Mate, that's very kind, Neil. Thank you so much. And I encourage everyone else. We'll drop the link below. But the link for that website is what, mate? Or, or the URL? Uh, www.rockpoolfoundation.com. Fantastic. Again, Neil, such an honor. And I look forward to seeing you at some point in the future. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, See brother. you. We can, we can arm bump next time <laughs> <Yeah>. we catch up. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. See you, brother. Cheers, mate. Bye. Ciao, mate. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.